Okay then, friends, let's return to this Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. I'm not going to read through them again right now. We read them a few minutes ago. This is the account of Jesus talking about the serpent in the wilderness. See, the Old Testament is full of types and shadows. That's what we do know, don't we? That it's types and shadows of what is to come, primarily. So we must always be very careful and make sure that we interpret the Old Testament by the light of the New. Because we can make mistakes of doing it the other way around. That we take the Old Testament to the New Testament and we interpret it that way. The New Testament interprets the Old because they're types and shadows and types are symbols. Shadows are not the whole. They are kind of a, when you, when you walk in and you see your shadow on the wall, it's your shape, but it's not you. It shows you what is, it gives you a shape, it gives you an outline, gives you a shadow of what is. So it's important that we do that. So it's important to remember that when we read the Old Testament, that we don't make a doctrine out of it without going to the new. That's where we get a lot of error from. So here, you see, Jesus is referring to himself to the lifting up of the serpent in the wilderness by Moses. He refers to it and reveals what it foreshadowed. That's what he does here. He's referring to that which happened already and he is opening up or revealing what it actually foreshadowed. The serpent on the pole, we've got to understand, was not a made-up story. It's not just simply a metaphor in history that Jesus picks out. It's actually happened. And we've got to remember these things, although there's a lot in the Old Testament that are types and shadows, they actually happened and they meant something there and then for those people at that time. We mentioned it not so long back about the Exodus. We sometimes tend to look at the Exodus and go straight away to what it means or what it um, in, in greater detail foreshadows in the reality of Christ saving his people. So God takes the people out of Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea, saves them from bondage of Egypt. And he takes them eventually to the promised land. We look at Jesus, don't we, who saves his people from the bondage of sin. Takes them through baptism, through the sea. And he leads them, after a life in some ways through wilderness, into the promised land of heaven. But we actually have to understand that the Exodus was a real happening. It really happened. And it meant something to those people of that day. It was their redemption. It was their salvation, in a sense, from Egypt. So, so here, so the same here, that it actually happened. So let's take a look at it. Let's go to Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to read to you verses 4 to 9. Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. Numbers is, of course, the fourth book of the Old Testament. Verse 4 then says... Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea 
to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against Moses, sorry, against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. This all actually happened to the people in the wilderness, the people of Israel. But what Jesus did was to take this actual happening, actual real life events, and he took them and he cast his light over it to reveal its full meaning. This is, of course, as you hear these words read or you follow them in the Bible that you have in front of you, you, if you know the Lord, you will read it and see exactly what it's about. It's a foreshadow of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his saving grace. So there's quite a lot going on here. Almost from the outset of God hearing the cries of the Israelites, the cries of bondage. You remember that they cried to the God of heaven and it says that he remembered them. Right from the outset, from that time and releasing them from it by the hand of Moses, these people constantly moaned and groaned. And not only against Moses, but actually against God himself, as we've just heard. He moaned against the Lord. For all the signs and the wonders that they had witnessed against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they saw it all. Plagues from which they themselves were miraculously spared. Remember, it says that and that while they were travelling in the wilderness even, that their clothes nor their shoes wore out. Can you imagine? As, as dapper as Phil looks this morning, look, in his shirt, in his shoes. Imagine wearing that and them never, ever wearing out, Phil. You never have to buy any again. That's what happened to these people. They didn't wear out. For all their 40 years of travelling, my shoes wouldn't last that long. That they were moaning and groaning, even after seeing so many miracles, so many signs, so many plagues. All, all of the time, this place, this little place of Goshen, where the Israelites were, 
when it was dark and all the Egyptians were clawing around, they couldn't see anything. There was light where they were. It's amazing to think, isn't it? That after seeing all that, you moan against the God that spared you. But the truth is that their God was their stomach. Oh, they cried. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's what they said against God and against Moses. Can you imagine them accusing God? That's what they were doing. <coughs> of bringing them out to kill them in the wilderness. After all that they'd seen, they still couldn't trust the Lord to feed them. This was their cry, this was their faithless attitude, which led to what was actually an 11-day journey, lasting 40 years, until this godless generation died out. That's why it took 40 years, because God says, you will not enter. Only the next generation, bar Caleb and Joshua, would enter into the promised land. So they, so they trudged and trundled along, setting up camp, learning the way of the tabernacle and the sacrifices up, packing away, imagine packing up that, the whole tabernacle. If you read in the scriptures what it took to build, what it took to make, the clasps, the boards, the curtains, the skins, the tables, and everything that was included, the boards that, in the outer court of the tabernacle, it was huge, it was, it was a right old work. But they often moved around and they had to take it up and they had to take it down. Such, such work for 40 years. It was an 11-day journey that took 40 years. And so they said, why have you brought us up here out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. So there is a, a sense of entitlement here, which is present in every generation. Even we ourselves probably have, and maybe still do, suffer with these kind of things. We think we have a right to certain things, don't we? So they have a sense of entitlement. But everything is God's. He created everything. See, there is there's nobody, not one person, not one thing that can twist God's arm to share his good things. Doesn't have to do it. Doesn't have to give us anything. He doesn't set in place seed time and harvest, which we spoke about last week. He didn't set that in place for himself. He has no need of meat. He has no need of vegetables or fruit or bread. They are good gifts to his creation. Which he provides generously to all men. The righteous and the unrighteous alike. What right then do we have to complain? 
Yet these people did. What right do we have to complain? What right did they have to complain? Does God owe you a thing? Does God owe us anything? No, friends. Is it not we who owe such a great debt to him? Absolutely we do. That's why the gift of Jesus Christ is a free gift. Do you know why? Not because it's cheap, but because it's so costly that there is nothing that we could give to pay for it. It has to be free. It has to be a gift from God because it's too costly. The greatest thing that we could ever give for anything would be our life. But our lives are sinful and impure and cannot purchase salvation. And if that's the greatest thing we can give and it can't procure our salvation, then we're at a great loss. Which is why, of course, as I've said, the salvation of God is a free gift to mankind. We owe him a great debt. But I think that, that when we read such things as we've just read, we ought to be shocked at the audacity of these people. Their audacity after everything that they'd seen and witnessed. The fact that they had seen God as a pillar of uh, fire and, uh, and a cloud of, uh, you know, at night to lead them. He led them in fire and there was a cloud behind his presence came and filled the tabernacle. They saw the works of God. And yet they, the audacity that they had to say to God and to Moses, you've brought us out in the wilderness to kill us because we've got no food, we've got no water. But let us also be very careful and examine ourselves in our own grumbling. And our own dissatisfaction. How often have you found yourself just wishing you had that bit more? I have. <laughs> Lord, I just need a bit more. Scripture says you ought to be content. Paul says to Timothy, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Like when we prayed earlier, God gives us what we need. And I would, <coughs> at least, I don't know whether it be assumption, but I would be happy to say that everybody in this room has what they need. You might not have what you want, you might not have what your heart desires. You might think at times that it's hard to get through. But get through you do. God always looks after his people. And so we ought to always be careful to check our own grumbling and our own dissatisfaction. We ought to be content with what God gives us. But there is... This particular murmur here in Numbers 21, verse 5, which should strike at our very heart when we read it. He says this, For there is no food, 
no water. And our soul loathes this worthless bread. Think about it. Why is that so striking? Our soul loathes this worthless bread. This is most despicable for it is of course the manna provided by God which is meant here. That's what they're groaning about. This coriander seed wafer like bread called manna that God supplied from heaven that came and rested on the ground like the dew of the morning. Miraculously provided by God. And they said our soul loathes this worthless bread. So it's manna that it's meant here. And they viewed this miraculous food as vile. <clears throat> vile. Lacking in substance. And would, unlike Daniel, rather suffer back in slavery in order to eat the dainties of the wicked world. You remember Daniel? He would have none of it. You keep your rich food, O king. Or we will not eat food offered to idols. We'd rather eat fruit and vegetables. And we will be better off. But these people, they long to be back under the bondage of the Egyptians. Just so they could sit at the meat pots again. And eat their fill. You see, God never does anything without purpose. This is something we must understand. Nothing just happens. Nothing is just written in the Bible to fill space. Everything happens for a purpose. He could, as he did with the quail, which far from the sky, provide meat aplenty. He could have done that. He could, without the slightest trouble, provide nourishment by sending it on the wings of a raven, as he did later on with Elijah. He could have caused oil to flow without ceasing from their pots, or multiply enough and more for what little was in their stores. He could have done that. God who created the world from nothing is by no means limited in his ability to feed and clothe his people. Let's see what Jesus says regarding this man. John 6, 27-35. Jesus here is speaking to the Jewish people whom he has not long ago fed by multiplying loaves and fish. The God of heaven and earth is able to do such. Verse 27 says, Do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then? He's just fed them miraculously, and they still seek a sign. Signs are never enough. What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers, they said, ate manna in the desert. As it is written, 
He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Most assuredly, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Can you see then why this grumble was one of abject wickedness? Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 5 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. you see what he is lining it up with? All ate the same spiritual food. All drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The rock was Christ. The manna was Christ. So they said, not just of the manna, but of the Christ of whom the manna represented. They call it worthless bread. So it says, the Lord sent fiery serpents this is the anger, the righteous anger of God. You can understand, can't you, why he sent them, why he judged them. He sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. God brought judgment upon them for their wickedness. Venomous serpents invaded the camp. They bit and killed many of the Israelites. On them. Seeing this, many of the others realised their sin in speaking against the Lord and Moses. And again we see that so rich is he in his mercy that he heard the prayer of Moses. Who was of course the mediator, the intercessor. Of which we see again yet another type and shadow of Jesus Christ. For Moses was a mediator and Christ is the mediator. He was an intercessor and what does it say of Christ as he went back to the Father that he ever lives to intercede on behalf of his saints. Type and shadows, type and shadows. <coughs> and therefore he showed them the way of redemption. The very thing that judged them and brought death upon them, became the focus of healing and life. Moses, at God's command, made a bronze fiery serpent. 
put it on a pole, and all who had been bitten and obeyed the command to look upon the serpent, they lived. There was, of course, no power in the bronze serpent itself. It was just a piece of metal on a pole shaped to look like a fiery serpent. That the power was in the God in whose command they obeyed. So going back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 9 to 11 we read this. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. They tempted him. They brought contempt upon his name by calling the bread that God had supplied from heaven, which was a type and shadow of the Christ to come, worthless. That's terrifying, isn't it? They called the Lord Jesus Christ worthless. They were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And he gives this. Now all things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These were written to warn us, to show us. To give us a clue about the truth of who Christ is. And how wonderful he is. And how majestic he is. And Jesus himself said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus Christ is the true manna, the bread sent from heaven, the bread of life. And in like manner, unregenerate, wicked men despised him. And whose soul loathes this worthless bread. Isaiah prophesied of Christ, didn't he? That he would be despised and rejected of men. Did not those who were his own brethren hate him? And without the cause? And the religious leaders who should have known his coming. They planned and they plotted... And orchestrated his capture and his death. Of course the Lord was delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God. And yet it was by these lawless hands that he was taken and crucified. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And as those in the wilderness looked up to the serpent... They were rarely healed, and they did truly live. It was Christ who gave them life, not the serpent image. Don't forget that although the Lord Jesus Christ was born as a man, much later on, the Son of God was always present. Let's not forget that. Because in him, the scripture tells us, is life. In him we live and move 
and have our being. We're told that all things exist and are held together by Him. That He is the life-giving Spirit. Have we despised and rejected Him? Have we viewed this bread of life, who is of matchless worth, as worthless? Have we trampled the blood of the Son of God under our feet? This is what these people did. And they saw an immense amount of miraculous things. They saw the God of heaven and earth at work before their very eyes in ways that you and I <coughs> have never seen. And yet these same men rejected and despised him and even said that the bread that God had provided from heaven was worthless. And we have, friends, every one of us at one point or another complained against God and his Christ. We've grumbled and groaned and complained at our lot. And what greater calamity can befall us than to despise Christ and treat him as common? We've been sin-soaked and the bite of judgment has caused the venom of justice to flow. And death is inevitable as sin's wages are paid. But God, it's always God, isn't it? Always, always God. So helpless are we in dead in trespasses and sin. So weak in the flesh, for as we've read and said already, without Christ we could do nothing. But God, says Paul, is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, has lifted up his son. He lifted him up. Not a lifeless bronze serpent, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, yes, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It was him that was lifted up. What does he say? Again, in another place. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Many died by the sting of death. But Christ says, look unto me and live. Behold, that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Being dead, it is Christ who gives us life. Being in the dark, it is Christ who is our light. Being at war with God, it is Christ himself who is our peace. Being afar off from God, it is Christ by his blood that brings us near. Being shut out of the Holy of Holies. Through Christ we have access to the Father. Being chained under the dominion of sin, Christ breaks those shackles, setting us free. And being strangers to God, through Christ we become adopted sons. Being once lost, in Christ we are now found. 
How? How is this? Because Jesus Christ became our substitute. For he, that is God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This Jesus Christ was, is, the perfect, spotless lamb. He knew no sin. And listen, friends, he was never tainted by it either. He was and remains without sin. Our sin, we need to understand, was imputed to him. He didn't take it on him in the sense that he became it. I've heard somebody recently teach that Jesus actually became sin. And he starts to talk about how Jesus became a child molester on the cross. How he was a rapist on the cross and a murderer. That he actually became that because of this verse taken out of context. What this verse is telling us is that all of our sin was imputed to him. He was judged as though the sin were his. But it never actually became his, as some blasphemists teach. And as much as sin was imputed or accredited to his account, through him giving his life upon the cross and paying the wages of sin, which is death for us, all who put their trust in him have his righteousness imputed to them or credited to their account. Are you righteous, friends, right now? Yes and no. You've got no righteousness of your own, even now, sat where you're sat. But what you do have, if you trust in Christ, is an imputed righteousness. That it's been put into your account, if you know him, if you love him, if he is yours, if you're born again, Christ, God looks upon you and he sees your account and it's in the black. Because Christ has given you his righteousness. God looks and he sees his son's righteousness when he looks at you. And it will be fulfilled as we enter into heaven. Just as sin was not Jesus' sin. The righteousness credited us to us who believe is not our own. It is his. We become the righteousness of God through him. All in him. It's all in him. That's where we put our trust. That's what God sees. He sees him. Now the question then is, if Christ died, why do people perish? We've seen in this context, the people moaned and groaned, and they treated the Son of God, the bread of heaven, as though he were worthless. And yet God had mercy. God had mercy upon them. Some died, yes they did, but the others, he gave them redemption. Look to the serpent on the pole. Gaze, not just give it a glance, but gaze upon him, look upon him. That's what we're told to do with Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Gaze upon him on the cross. We took away our sin. But there's a reason 
why people perish. John 3.19 After these most famous verses of God so loved the world, we forget the verses that come afterwards. He says this, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. I don't know about you, but when you've done something wrong and you've sinned and you know it, the last place you want to go is God. Even now as a Christian. Not because you're in your soul and your spirit doesn't desire to, but you don't feel worthy enough. You feel like you can't. You feel like, what's God going to think of me? These people who don't even desire Christ, they want to go nowhere near the light. Why? Because the light, like it shines on a dirty window, will show up all the filth that's there. That's what happens. Lest his deeds should be exposed, because they will be. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. It's a simple thing. The reason why people are condemned is simple. And it's this, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Christ is the light. Men love darkness. They love their sin. They love their own way rather than the light. And what does it say in Romans chapter 1? He says that God gave them over to what they desired, which is why they started to perform all sorts of perverted acts. Because they gave them over, and they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And so he gave them over to the darkness, and the darkness is where they love to hide. And But one day, friends, they will all come out into the light, and as the scripture says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But here is the truth, simply put, to reject Jesus Christ leads to condemnation. Simply, that's it. If you've rejected him, or you sit here today in rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you sit condemned. There's nothing can be said any simpler. But to believe leads to eternal life. He says this, believe. What do I need to do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That he has become your substitute. That he has taken upon himself your sin. And he's been punished for it in your stead. The light of heaven the glory of God, the Son of God, the only begotten Son, punished in your place, taking away, as it says in John, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away. If you trust in Christ this morning, your sin has been taken away. As far as the east is from the west, so far are your transgressions from you. Blessed is the man, David said, 
whose sins are not counted against him. That's where you stand in Christ. But if not, your sin is still counted against you and you are guilty before a holy God and you stand condemned. There's only one way, friends, for that to be removed and that is the blood of Christ. <coughs> Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks this morning for this account of the serpent on the pole and how we see what it represents in its truest form that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who took upon himself the wickedness of a people who have looked at him and seen him and viewed him and spoken of him and acted as though he were worthless. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have, even without knowing it, acted or spoken as though you were worthless. Lord, there is terror for those who live believing that you are worthless. The only outcome for them is that they are going to be bitten by the death of sin. And that, that plague will kill them. Not only in this life, but in a life to come. And Lord, we thank you that you have, in your grace and mercy, put a serpent on the pole who is, in its fulfilment, our blessed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we look to him, and that bite, that venomous bite has been healed. That sin no longer has any sting, no victory, no death for all who put their trust in you. So, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and your loving kindness. But I do pray, I ask you, Lord God, for any amongst us this morning who have rejected you. Lord, they sit condemned. And they will meet a holy and a righteous God and have to answer for their rejection. And they will be cast aside into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth into the lake of fire from which there is no escape. I ask then, Lord, for mercy for them. Lord, that you might open ears and hearts and eyes and minds, that they may see the truth, that they may, like the Israelites, see that they are sinned against Christ and against the Father, and that they look as they have been commanded to do, look to him and be saved. Lord, we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.